You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning. Today's scripture is taken from Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 to 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and in all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together and they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he has been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, and along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, Good morning, church. This morning, I've been tasked to preach the second sermon in our series on faith and work, titled, Refining Our Perspectives of Work. So, uh, like most trilogies, you know, like the Star Wars trilogy, the second installment is often a downer. I think Empire Strikes Back. So, today, we're going to think about the futility of work, but I hope to show that the Bible's God-breathed and wise observations on work are still relevant today, no matter how many years ago they were written. So with that, uh, let's pray. Father, your word written thousands of years ago still speaks truth today. So Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to accept these truths and apply them to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Work is often futile, so we spend most of our waking hours on work, but it often does not produce the kind of satisfaction that we desire. 
As Wilson mentioned last week, the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 shows us that God created us to be workers. But the fall, and particularly Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, they tell us that work is cursed. So there are many ways that this plays out. Maybe we just keep falling short of standards at work. Maybe even meeting standards is not enough. Maybe the work seems pointless, it never really goes anywhere. Maybe we finally get that promotion towards which we've been working for for many years, only to feel as empty as before. Now, these are all valid reasons why we struggle with work. But let me put it to you this morning that one major reason is simply the presence of people and our relationships with them. This is because people, including me and you, are all sinful. Right? Work is fundamentally social. Many of us would have bosses, subordinates, and colleagues. You know, save for the self-sustaining hermit in the woods, which I doubt any of you are since you're here this morning, your work will involve interacting with other people. You know, this is true whether you're a businessman running your own business because you also have clients and customers, whether you're a homemaker managing your household because you have many other people in your house, or if you're a student at school with classmates and teachers. Our work is fundamentally social, and that means sinful human relationships. And our text this morning tells us that this is why work is futile. So please open up your Bibles with me to our text this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're visiting us this morning, we are glad that you're here. Welcome again. If you do not have a Bible with you, please share one with the person beside you, or you can find one online on your phone. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Ecclesiastes is around the middle. So around the middle of the Bible, you open it up, you go past the Psalms and the Proverbs, don't get to the Song of Songs and Isaiah, and you'll get to Ecclesiastes. Now the big, bold numbers on your Bibles are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So keep it open during the sermon, because we'll be referring to it a lot, and I'll not be flashing most of the references on the slides. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now let's first understand the text before us in its context. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, okay? Wisdom book, much like Proverbs and Job. So one helpful way to think about this genre of wisdom literature is that it primarily focuses on God as creator rather than God as redeemer, okay? So you'll be hard-pressed to find the idea of salvation by faith in the place like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or Job. So these books don't tell us much about familiar Christian concepts like God's forgiveness of sin. Instead, they focus on life and how one ought to live in light of God's role as creator. So if you all were following our ACAD or a chapter a day readings just earlier this year, from April to May, uh, Ecclesiastes in particular focuses on one central question, what gain there is in life. So this is summarized at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So the speaker in the book of Ecclesiastes is named the preacher. Right? So that's what I'll call the author this morning, the preacher. He surveys all of creation and humanity in chapter 1. And then he surveys all pleasures, 
or achievements or self-directed wisdom in chapter 2. And he repeatedly gives this verdict. All of life is vanity, a chasing after wind. So this technical term, vanity, has been translated as futility in other translations. It gives the sense of not being able to achieve one's intended goal. You put in effort, you think you're going to achieve something, but you don't achieve that. Now that second expression, the parallel expression, striving or chasing after wind, uh, it connotes a sense of fleetingness, not like wind that you just try to chase after, but you never get. Something is brief or short-lived. So when we read Ecclesiastes, we must keep in mind that the preacher's quest for gain, as we see in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, is uh, in this quest, his own observations are primary and God is secondary. So Ecclesiastes shows us what observations on life that begin from humanity rather than God's revelation looks like. So as Christians, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1. So Ecclesiastes' brand of wisdom is ultimately insufficient. But still, it is God's word, and so it's helpful as a perspective on the reality of life. Okay, so before I lose y'all, we're going to the text now. So let's go to our text this morning in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So the main point of the sermon this morning is confront the futility of work by fighting sin at the workplace. I'll say that again. Confront the futility of work by fighting sin at the workplace. If you are taking notes to follow along, there are four points in this sermon. Each of them illustrate how we do so. So first, in verses 1 to 3, comfort the oppressed. Comfort the oppressed. Second, in verses 13 to 16, that came out too quickly. There we go. Okay, uh, cherish wise leaders. Cherish wise leaders. Third, in verses 4 to 6, cultivate contentment. Cultivate contentment. And fourth and finally, in verses 7 to 12, collaborate with partners. Collaborate with partners. So these are four ways that Ecclesiastes chapter 4 shows us that we can fight sin at the workplace and thereby confront the futility of work. Now, if you may have been paying attention, you'll notice that the verse references skip around a little, right? The second point isn't verses 4 to 6. And this is because the chapter is structured like... Here we go. Ah. There we go. A double cheeseburger, okay? So since I'm vegetarian, let's just say that these are meatless patties, okay? They're not beef patties today, right? So... Uh, the top and bottom of the passage, verses 1 to 3 and 13 to 16, are like the two buns, okay? They both deal with vertical relationships, like between your boss and your colleagues, right? The middle two passages, verses 4 to 6 and 7 to 12, are like the two meatless patties, right? They're both about horizontal relationships, such as between colleagues. So we'll start with the buns, then we'll go to the patties, okay? So point one, comfort the oppressed. Look with me at verse 1. Again, I saw that all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. 
And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So the preacher observes oppression at work, right? He calls it the tears of the oppressed. That's why there was that crying emoji earlier. In the context of Ecclesiastes, this usually involves the withholding of wages, right? At best, that's it. But even worse, it could be physical or even sexual abuse. So this is why he goes on in verse 2 to say that among the oppressed, the dead are more fortunate than the living. He goes even further in verse 3 to say that actually, it is even better to have never been born than to live and experience such oppression. Oppression indeed is horrifying. And we know that evil deeds, oppression, these are not merely ancient concepts. Sin is an ever-present reality. So today around the world, we have human trafficking, we have exploitative labour, we have child pornography, and the list goes on. Now, even in Singapore, with all our laws and order, we often read of stories of migrant workers having wages withheld and being forced to live in difficult conditions. What about you? Are you being oppressed at work? Now, I hope that your experience is not as extreme as what I've just painted, but if it is, uh, please speak to your leaders or the elders about seeking help. But oppression is a beast with many forms and faces. Some of them are more subtle than others. Maybe you have a biased boss who unfairly sorry, favours others over you because of your looks, because of your gender, because of your race, maybe because of your personality even. Maybe a team leader at work uh, takes credit for the group work that you all have done uh, when presenting it to higher bosses. Maybe they do so without you even knowing about it. Maybe a supervisor uses harsh words to criticise you. Maybe your colleagues try to resign only to be told that they have been laid off and will not be able to serve the notice period. Now, you may think that Christianity does not care about such situations as it only concerns about you know, bringing people to Christ and eternal life with God. But here, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, God's word clearly states that this oppression is evil. It also makes work futile, as you can work as best as you can, but this oppression robs you of all joy and satisfaction. So how shall we respond and confront this futility born out of human sin at our workplaces? Well, the text shows us that we ought to comfort the oppressed. Look back at verse 1 in your Bibles. The preacher intentionally repeats the statement that the oppressed he sees has no one to comfort them. You all notice that? So today, do you look out for your colleagues who might be getting unfair treatment at work? Do you console your spouse? your friends, your partner, when they share with you their struggles? Do people even see you as someone who is available and willing to listen? Or are you too busy or caught up with your own work that they rather not inconvenience you? Now, church, being available is a key first step to comforting the oppressed. And if you are the oppressed, church, receive comfort from your brothers and sisters in Christ, but also find wise ways to address this oppression that you face. But perhaps we instead are the oppressor instead of the oppressed. And if so, we need to repent of this. Now take a moment to think about those over whom you wield authority, be it your subordinates at work, your children at home, 
or maybe the helper you have employed in your home? Do you treat them justly and fairly because you have a master in heaven as Colossians chapter 4, verse 1 commands? Do you give your foreign domestic worker their days off? If they, these people under your authority, were to answer an honest, no whole bars interview about how you wield authority, what would they say? Now, many times our need for power, our need for control, our need for convenience can lead us to sin against those over whom we wield authority. Sometimes we might even be blind to our own shortcomings and sins. And so we should create safe environments in which our subordinates and employees can provide honest feedback about our leadership. So something I do with my team at work is I meet them one-on-one uh, -on -one every two months, and then I ask them, what can Nick stop doing? What can Nick start doing? And what can Nick continue doing? I mean, they don't always give me very constructive feedback all the time, but at least I try to give them the opportunity to give me feedback as well. So and when criticism is raised, which will happen when you create such safe environments, right, and our sins are exposed, let's guard our hearts against defensiveness. Right? May our knowledge of God's forgiveness of our sins enable us to repent, seek forgiveness, and make reparations. Let us be agents of comfort to those whom we have once oppressed. So that's our first way to confront futility at work, by comforting the oppressed. But the preacher spots another problem in these vertical relationships. Even if you are a wise and godly leader who does not oppress your team, your effectiveness might be fleeting. So this brings us to our second point, cherish wise leaders. Right, look at verse 13, the bottom bun in this double cheeseburger. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. Okay, this is not the most straightforward passage. Uh, I recently did a Christian education class on Ecclesiastes and one uh, of my participants remarked, I don't even know who went to the throne, who went to prison and everything. So let me try to illustrate this uh, parable of the preacher. Okay, so we have, we, let's be introduced to this man called Old Oliver. Okay? Old Oliver was a rich king. And now uh, he's in his sunset years and he no longer sought counsel from his advisors. On the other hand, we have Wise William. Okay? Wise William was a young orphan. He went through hardship in his childhood. He had been to prison in his early years because he stole food to survive amidst poverty and starvation. But he rose through the ranks as people recognized him and rewarded his wisdom with greater responsibility. And over the years, somehow, eventually, he overtook uh, and took over, rather, old Oliver as king. So the preacher says in verse 16, that there was no end to all the people that wise William led. And this shows his superiority to old Oliver. So in the realm of leadership, experience and wealth pale in comparison to wisdom. But there's a twist at the second part of verse 16. Right? Later people who perhaps did not live through old Oliver's reign, they did not rejoice in wise William's leadership they probably took it for granted as well. So wise William's effectiveness waned over time. 
Now, the preacher doesn't really give us a reason for this. Right? Perhaps this was to generally suggest that before long, wise leaders are often taken for granted. Maybe these wise leaders don't show favor towards powerful stakeholders or clients, and so they're despised for that in the business world. Maybe their integrity right, makes them slower or less successful in yielding output because they go through the necessary processes rather than take shortcuts. Or maybe just at the workplace, they don't laugh at lewd jokes, right? they don't participate in gossip, they don't get drunk at meals, and their colleagues view them as a killjoy. Right? Whatever the case, the preacher tells us that wise leadership is futile and fleeting. So how should we respond to this reality of fleeting wise leadership taken for granted by sinful followers? So uh, the preacher in the text does not give us a direct application point, but perhaps one way we can confront this futility is to instead cherish our wise leaders. Right? Even if our colleagues and higher superiors alienate our wise leaders in the ways I just mentioned, let your allegiance and obedience to Christ, our Saviour, stop you from joining them in such sinful behaviour. Another way we cherish wise leaders is by affirming and appreciating them. And perhaps one example of this in the workplace uh, among our church members is Ofnil, right? Uh, not the judge, but Ofnil Leo right here. He's a GM in a software company, and I'm quite sure of his wise and godly leadership because a number of members of this church are currently working for him. Maybe they're sitting beside you now. Right? Now, the thought of fellow church members seeing you at work where you might be most likely to participate in gossip or lose your temper might scare many of us. It scares me, actually. Right? But Ofnil's situation shows that he's an integrated person, a follower of Christ not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. Right? He is objective, patient, and also gentle at work. And not to mention in the musical worship ministry, he was playing the keyboard earlier, right? and in his family of seven as well. Now, okay, I'm sure there are many faults of his that one can point out. Right? We're all sinful regardless. But let's appreciate the godly leadership that Ofnil and others among us shows in the various fields of our lives. Now, church, who is a wise leader at your work or in various parts of your life that you can likewise affirm and encourage such that you do not take their leadership for granted? They may feel underappreciated many a times, and your words might go a long way. Now that we've seen how we can confront futility at work by comforting the oppressed and cherishing our leaders, let's turn now to consider our horizontal relationships the meatless patties in our double cheeseburger. Our third point, cultivate contentment. Now look with me at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now in other words, excellence and hard work come from jealousy and competitiveness. Now, this morning, I don't want to discourage those who are genuinely trying to seek godly excellence in your work without jealousy or competitiveness. So, godly Christians, please continue to do so. But here, this, uh, we see this morning that the preacher points out a clear feature of our sinful condition. Jealousy breeds results. In fact, we see this in all segments of our society. 
be it school, work, parenting, and so on. Right? Think, think just for a moment. If you're in school or when you used to be in school, have you ever gotten a grade that you wanted for an exam? Maybe that B that you were finally working for after struggling with many Ds. Right? Only to be frustrated because someone you disliked or someone you thought you were better than had done even better than you. Has that ever set some frustration in your heart? Now, at your workplace, right, have you worked harder at work with the goal of outshining a colleague who is vying for that same promotion that you are? Right? Are your colleagues just mere competition for you to overcome? Now, as a parent, right, have you ever wanted your child to be more academically, musically, athletically, or artistically excellent because you heard about so-and-so's child doing this or that? Now, these can be good things, right? Better grades, a promotion at work, your child's holistic development. But the preacher cuts at our hearts when he points out the underlying motivation behind our efforts, jealousy. This also is futile, because unless you can rise to the top of the world, there will always be someone better to compete with. Now, the preacher goes on in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So the fool is the opposite of the wise in wisdom literature. Right here, the fool, he folds his hands in idleness and is led to self-ruin. Maybe he's a freeloader. He profits on his colleagues' work, but he gets kicked out of the team soon after. Now, Wilson already spent last week preaching on idleness, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. But notice here that the preacher denounces idleness just as he does competitive jealousy. So if competitive jealousy and idleness are both futile extremes, how should we work? The preacher answers this in verse 6. Look with me there. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So the preacher commends quiet contentment. Right? Later, in chapter 5, verse 19, he describes this as a God-given gift. Contentment, that's a big word. What does it actually look like in our workplaces? Right? Practically, it might look like a lack of grumbling when we don't get that big, flashy project with high visibility with bosses, or that opportunity to give a big presentation, or that pay increment or promotion for which we've been holding out for very long. Now, positively, it means being grateful for having a job amidst this difficult economy right now, and even helping others at your own expense when they are in need. Now, for Christians, this contentment is born out of our secure identity as children of God loved by Him. So, cultivate contentment. And I'll give us some more illustrations of this after we consider our fourth way to confront futility at work. The second meatless patty. Collaborate with partners. Now look again with me at verse 7 in your text. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the preacher here describes what I think we can all agree is a tragic situation. One is so caught up with one's toil that he isolates himself, 
cutting off social connections. Right? While he finds himself unsatisfied with his work, he actually never even stops to ask why he's toiling so hard. Therefore, the preacher declares his word futile. It does not satisfy. Now, does this describe you? Maybe not all the time since you are sitting here in church this morning when you could, could have been toiling at your workplace, but maybe at some periods of time, especially busy periods at work, do you tend to cut yourself off such that you never pause to evaluate why you are toiling so hard or for whom? Now, does busyness at work compromise your obedience to God in loving His people and your family? Does it stop others from loving you? Or do they have to step around your toes so that they don't trigger your wrath because you're so caught up with your work? Right? I know that I have often brought home my stress at work and I react in sinful ways to those around me, often with impatience, with unkind words and smart aleckness, right? especially to those uh, closest to me. Right? So would you take a moment with me this morning now to repent of sinfully isolating yourself and ask God for forgiveness to handle busyness with grace. Right, let's take a moment to do that right now. Amen. Yes, Lord. So if you're visiting with us this morning, today, and you're not a Christian, but maybe, or hopefully rather, you have been convicted of your sins, this one or another mentioned earlier, we hope that you would repent of them and confess Jesus as Lord. Right? Please, we urge you not to ignore your conscience, but speak to me or anyone else in this church about this later. So we're going to come to the near, near the end of the passage in verse 9, where the preacher then beautifully depicts collaborative partnerships. Look with me at verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and not, has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now this might seem a little out of place, right? What is this beautiful paragraph doing in a chapter about the futility of work? Right? Now the key lies in noticing that the word another in verse 10, right, you see that when he falls and has not another to lift him up, that word another is conceptually linked to the word other in verse 8. Right? In verse 8, uh, he, one person who has no other. Right? So in fact, they are the same word. Right? So the preacher holds out this picture of collaborative partnership as the wise alternative to isolation. Having a partner means having someone to help you when you fall. I'm sure many songs have been written about that. Right? Verse 11 speaks of keeping warm when lying together. And this is probably not a sexual image, just to be clear. Right? It's a picture of Jewish merchants keeping warm as they travel in the cold desert nights. Now, finally, in verse 12, two are better able to defend themselves against a strong individual uh, adversarial. Right? And even more so, a band of three people. 
Right. Now, our modern readers today might appropriate this three-fold chord metaphor as uh, involving God in our marriage. Now, the preacher probably just has three humans in mind. Right. He reminds his readers that partnerships can involve more than two members. So church, are you known to be collaborative at your workplace? Are you willing to take the fall with others? Right. Are you willing to lift others up when they fall? Do you help your colleagues when they are facing issues? Are you known as being willing to share credit with others or even willing to let others take the full credit for the work done? Now, this comes hand in hand with the earlier point on contentment. Right? Only when one is content can one be a godly partner at work. Right? As a member of this church, now I want to commend a group of people who do this exceedingly well in our church. Our dearest staff in this church, and particularly the non-pastoral staff, right, they manage the administrative day-to-day -day running of the church from processing the claims for the bus and bond food upstairs to producing content such as these very slides. Oh, not there, but we'll come up again later. Right, these very slides and videos to communicate messages from the church. Now, myself as an instructor in the Christian Education Ministry, they have supported me immensely with logistics, such as uh, preparing the room and supplying the materials. This is quite the thankless job. Right? Their work is mainly behind the scenes and they often go unnoticed and unappreciated. So thank you to those who keep our church running. Deben, Sean, Lester, Sabrina, Crystal and Jermaine. Now, church, let us imitate them in their contentment which enables them to collaboratively partner with others without seeking credit or reward. Now to summarize, we confront futility at work by comforting the oppressed, by cherishing wise leaders, by cultivating contentment and collaborating with partners. These are ways we fight sin at our workplace. Right? Notice uh, that I intentionally say confront. Right, that's the title of the sermon, Confront. Right? None of these, even with our best efforts, would ever fully resolve the futility born out of sin in our workplaces. Right? These, in fact, are ways that we are to live in light of the gospel as recipients, channels, and agents of God's grace. But thankfully, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is not the end of the story. Now, unbeknownst to the preacher, this is not the end of God's story. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, that creation waits for the revealing of God's people. Now, why? Because as Paul continues in verses 20 to 21, God subjected creation to futility. You see that word over there? Futility, that same word that we've been meditating on all this morning. But more importantly, God will set creation free from his bondage to futility when we, as God's people, are revealed in glory. Now, this same act of Christ dying on the cross for our sins purchased not just our redemption, as you often hear preached, but also the renewal of creation. Now, all of creation, including our work and our workplaces, will be freed from futility when Christ returns to make all things new. And when this happens, we as Christians will be raised by
by Christ's resurrection power and have the pure joy of working collaboratively with full contentment without the stain of sin as we enjoy eternal life in the presence of our God and King. Now imagine this for a moment. No more oppression. No more jealous competition. No more isolation. No more striving. That is the picture of the new creation. Now this promised future of the new creation is why we, as Christians, even on this side of heaven, can continue to confront futility where God has placed us to work with hope, just as Paul writes at the end of verse 20. Why? Because God is the one who subjected work to futility and God will surely set it free. So as we continue to confront futility faithfully at our workplaces, let us do so with the hope that when Christ returns, He will set it free. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.